And welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. The summer is over, at least the summer break. We know that when Washington, D.C., and our legislators, our Democratic representatives are back at work, hopefully doing a great job in establishing the people's will in the decisions on the table. So we felt that this week's episode of An Organic Conversation should be dedicated to a brief overview and update on what's happening in Washington, how it may affect us, and where 10 minutes of our time to get involved and perhaps make a call might be important because what's on the table is also what's for dinner with several food policy bills that are being discussed in these weeks. What happens in Washington affects us all. An update on current food policy, our topic today. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. We're your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sitarani Palmar. And speaking of policy updates, interesting thing happened this month, early this month, regarding gluten-free labeling. This is really interesting that we finally have some kind of a way for people to distinguish whether or not the food is actually gluten-free. You know, there is a standard that foods have to be held to now. And there's an interesting feedback from the gluten-free community because, yes, it does show that this is an important thing to take notice of. But they're also saying that in order to qualify as a gluten-free ingredient, you just have to be under 20 parts per million gluten. And for some people, they're saying this seems like a really arbitrary, somewhat high number to say, as long as you're under this, you can call this a gluten-free item. But yeah. they're saying that there isn't technology sophisticated enough to test for anything smaller than that. Yeah. As of um, August 2nd, which will take uh, place and into effect August 2014, um, we now have official gluten-free labeling regulation in place approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the beginning of August, again, taking place August 2014 to give companies enough time to label their products. And yeah, you're right, 20 parts per million. Um, you know, it's it's almost impossible to not have some co-mingling of ingredients. In uh, You would need to have a completely gluten-free facility in order to make gluten-free products. Well, and even then, um, you know, wheat, uh, other things that might have gluten uh, C can come into the process. So having a zero tolerance is almost impossible, which doesn't help people who just can't have it at all. Um, people with celiac, for example. Well, for the celiac community, that is the biggest piece of criticism is that it shouldn't be impossible. And there are companies that are making it possible. You can get gluten-free oats now, which oats don't have gluten in them, but they're so frequently processed in facilities right. that do have gluten, right. it has to be a dedicated gluten-free facility. So that's what they're saying is if the food is manufactured in a gluten-free facility and the ingredients used to make the food are manufactured in a gluten-free facility and the ingredients themselves don't have any gluten, you should be able to get it under 20 parts per million. Well, and that's where it, uh, when I was shopping for my daughter um, and trying to read labels and thinking, oh, this is gluten-free and then reading that there's this or there's that because you don't know everything that's contains gluten also that's it makes it uh, makes it harder to do but that's the key thing is that I think that this is a start it's a great start it'll create an opportunity for larger companies to go okay we want to be you know gluten-free completely because obviously more and more people are either recognizing that they have a gluten intolerance or just uh, don't feel good when they eat it yeah what's interesting for me in this whole um conversation was that there was no debate, even though it took, you know, FDA several years and the gluten-free community wanted this labeling law passed much earlier, of course, there was not the same discourse, public discourse or argument or debate um, with with large industry companies um, saying that this will double food prices or this will confuse the consumer to the same degree as we've seen with GMO labeling. It's interesting that this is this is another food label that is important to a large group of people who either have health problems knowingly by eating um, gluten or who choose not to eat gluten because it's an allergen um, into their diet. And now they have the power, as of August 2014, they will have the power to at least choose that group of foods, um, you know, given the 20 parts per million of gluten that can still be part of it. But at large, they are, you are empowered to make that choice and, and support with your dollar uh, gl gluten-free products. 
and to purchase those. The same exact argument took place or has been taking place with the GMO labeling initiative. Um, you know, give, give the consumer the right to choose. And the argument was this will co confuse consumers and it will double or triple food prices. Um, why is that not the same argument with, uh, with gluten-free labeling? It's interesting that there had been no massive million dollars campaign to undermine our right to know, as it has happened in the GMO labeling. Um, just to give an update there, um, GMO labeling is on its way. Connecticut and Maine uh, both passed um, initiatives in June and legislation um, with the uh, with the sticky note that um, other border states and other states have to uh, adopt similar legislation as well. But in Connecticut and Maine, GMO labeling has passed. We're just waiting for enough states to pass now similar measures to finally give people the right to choose and the right to know when it comes to GMOs as well. Well, it's interesting and encouraging that at this point, I believe 26 states have introduced some kind of genetically engineered food labeling discussion. Um, so, you yes. know, when we say we need to have border states in order to pass this, the more and more people who introduce it and the more support, even though we didn't pass Prop 37 here in San Francisco and here in California, there was such an outpouring of people who were excited to get the right to know. Yeah, and, and the I education is now, the is now there, so I, I do believe it's just a matter of time. And Mark. interestingly enough, I mean, the, all the latest polling shows that 90% of Americans want GE labeling or GMO labeling. And actually, when, they, when they've uh, done it over parties, if you look at Democrats, independents, Republicans, it doesn't matter, nearly 90% or over want or support G, G, GMO labeling. Because yes. it's labeling, right? You're not telling somebody to make a decision about whether or not they think genetic modification of foods is safe. Yes. It's just, do we have the right to know? Yes, hopefully coming to a state near you very soon. Um, you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we have a great guest today, an expert on the most pressing and important Food policies, not depressing, but pressing, that are being debated in Congress and the House of Representatives right now as we speak. What happens in Washington stays in, no, affects us all. A food policy update today in this hour, that and more when we come back here on An Organic Conversation. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Working from home is awesome, except when it's not. If you're working from your couch or your coffee shop, chances are you're not your most productive. For thousands of entrepreneurs, co-working is the answer. Next Space is a co-working company with offices in L.A. and the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Find an innovative workspace, a built-in community, and great networking opportunities at NextSpace. Visit nextspace.us for more information. NextSpace. Your best work happens here. Somehow I made it to the heartache. Yes, I did.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palmar. Our topic today is what happens in Washington affects us all. A food policy update. Um, but before we dive into that topic fully, here's our weekly tip from the health uh, from the world of health and beauty. Here's Chef Sita and her holistic bite. Well, this week I want to talk about a way to make an easy treat, and that is melting chocolate to dip just about anything. <laughs> and this is a really fun weekend activity you can do with your kids. It's great if you're hosting some kind of event this summer, maybe a bridal shower, or if you're just looking for an evening suite for yourself while you're sitting on bed reading or watching your favorite movie or episode of television. It is incredibly easy. It is wonderfully decadent and I can't wait to tell you how to do it. So I'm going to keep this brief as a way for you to realize just how simple it is for you to do at home. The first thing you want to do when you melt chocolate is you want to put your chocolate chips. Start with chocolate chips. I think this is the easiest way to do it. You could do cut chocolate. But if you put a bag of chocolate chips in a bowl, make sure the bowl you're using is a stainless steel bowl. Because stainless steel is a better heat conductor, which means it's going to allow for more even and more quick heat than if you were to use a glass bowl or a ceramic bowl, for example. So separately, you want to get a small pot of water boiling. And you don't want it to be completely full because once it boils, you're going to reduce it to a simmer and put your bowl of chocolate chips over your saucepan. And you don't want the bowl where the chocolate chips are being held to touch the water. Because actually, what you're going to do is you're going to allow the steam from the boiling water to heat the bowl. And the bowl, which is warm, will melt the chocolate chips. Because if you were to just put the chocolate chips over the heat, you could scald it very easily. Burnt chocolate, not as delicious. And you can also cause the cocoa butter to separate. So this is a more gentle way to get it to melt. So You've got your chocolate chips in a stainless steel bowl over a pot of boiling water, and you're making sure that your bowl is not touching the water, actually. And with one hand that's either covered in an oven mitt or holding a towel, a dish towel, you want to hold the bowl so that it doesn't move because the other hand is going to be used a spatula or a spoon or a whisk. I think a spatula works best, but you're going to use it to keep stirring the chocolate chips so they're moving around and they're melting and the heat of a melted one is going to help increase the heat of another melted one. And this is how you're going to get it to that very velvety warm texture that you need to dip or drizzle. And this is basically creating a makeshift double boiler. You know, you can purchase a double boiler, but I feel like it's an extra kitchen gadget that isn't really necessary. This this version of just putting a bowl over boiling water is the only way that I've ever done it. It's never failed me. And then once you have this gorgeous velvety melted chocolate, you can use it to dip strawberries. I like to use it to dip peanut butter balls, which is a, a kind of a Midwestern treat called a, a buckeye, which is a, a peanut butter ball that's dipped in chocolate. And I also sometimes pour it over cakes or I pour it over cakes that I've cut into smaller rounds, maybe an inch and a half around, and, and make my own homemade pedophores, which sounds more complicated than it actually is. But because it's warm when you melt it, but it was a chocolate chip to begin with and you've not introduced any other liquid, when it cools, it will harden and you've got a coating, a candy coating, a delicious chocolatey coating. So I hope that this inspires you to do something delicious, decadent and fun and super simple in your kitchen this month. And that was this week's Holistic Bite. <laughs> Thank you, Sita. Mark, you look concerned. No, I, that, no it, sound, it, sounds very, it sounds very fun. It sounds, uh, and it sounds really easy to do. I mean, I'm surprised that uh, more people don't just make chocolate-covered strawberries or chocolate-covered peaches or that type of thing. I mean, it would seem like it, you'd have it a lot at, at or almonds or or almonds, yeah. Endless. Absolutely. Well, and the strawberries, you know, <laughs> they're not going to be around much longer. In some places, they may already be out of their season. But if you want to capitalize on the last bit of summer fruit, dip it in chocolate, serve it at your weekend event, or just do something fun with the kids. It may be messy, but boy, will it be memorable. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a great idea. What a great idea. Yes, the summer is over, at least the summer break, and that means Washington, D.C. is back working as well. Our legislators, our Democratic representatives are back at work, hopefully doing a great job in representing us in establishing the people's will in the decisions on the table, and that would include the kitchen table because several food policies are being debated. This hour here on An Organic Conversation is dedicated to giving you an update of what's cooking 
with us is Jenna Reed, lead researcher from Food and Water Watch, Washington, D.C., a great organization who is serving as our watchdog, foodandwaterwatch.org, for more information. Thank you. Are you with us, Jenna? Yes. Hello. Thanks for having me on here. Thank you for joining us today, for taking the hour. Yeah, welcome, Jenna. Um, hey, Jenna, first of all, I want to just acknowledge the work that uh, Food and Water Watch does. It is so valuable to me. I try to follow as much legislation as possible and have for years. And it's it's like people say, do you read anything besides this legal stuff, you know? And, yeah. you know, how do you fall asleep to that stuff? And I said, well, actually, if you're reading the legalese, it's pretty easy. But um, but so but there's a couple of things that have been happening recently, you know, in the world of legislation. And, you know, the farmer assurance provision is, has been passed and affectionately known as the Monsanto Protection Act. And then also upcoming is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a free trade agreement. And what uh, you know, let's kind of let's start with uh, the first one, the uh, farmer assurance uh, provision. Can you tell us what this is and what's the intent of this law and how it will affect us as consumers and our farms and farmers? Sure. So the farmer assurance provision was sort of slipped into the continuing resolution of um, Senate appropriations in March, um, and it's a six-month resolution, so it'll be expiring at the end of September. Um, And essentially what it does is undermine um, some of the procedural requirements of NEPA, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, one of the strongest environmental statutes that we have in this country. Um, And how it would undermine it exactly is that it would allow farmers to plant the seeds of a crop whose environmental review is still being disputed in a court. Um, So while what what NEPA basically does is um, requires agencies to prepare an environmental assessment for any federal action that would re- that would have any you know environmental impact. So this could range from draining a wetland to building some an airport or things like that. But in this case, it would be for planting genetically engineered crops in the U.S. Um, and for approving that from the USDA. So this particular provision would allow while um, USDA is being sued for, like, for example, not preparing a thorough enough environmental impact statement, it would still allow farmers to buy and plant the seeds that are sort of in dispute. Um, and you can see how the, this could be <laughs> um, controversial because these these crops are still being disputed, so there's no reason for them to be planted yes. yet until there is, like, full environmental review. So the idea is, um, you know, unsafe until proven safe no Mm -hmm. longer really applies. Is that correct? So usually when when there's a practice that is not fully understood or tested or or allowed fully, um, you you would have caution, uh, you know, proceed any legislation that would allow you to move on with that practice, whatever it may be. Meanwhile, in this case, and it's seeds, so there's a growing season to it, of course, and Mm -hmm. and a certain time frame, you are allowed to use that practice even though the environmental report has not been conclusively found that it's safe. Is that correct? Right. That is correct. So, um, you know, the biotech companies and several other food companies in support of this provision say that it's, you know, it's basically to help farmers out who have already bought the seed and, you know, let them plant it through the season um, without any problems. But um, the actual, this could actually impact farmers, too. Um, so, for example, genetically engineered Roundup Ready alfalfa was one of the crops that was in contention a few years ago. Um, and it was, USDA was being sued by Center for Food Safety um, because of the, their, their, they did not prepare a very good environmental impact statement, basically. They didn't consider all of the risks that were involved, including cross-contamination, because alfalfa is a very promiscuous crop, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is actually, it, it can contaminate nearby alfalfa plants very, very easily. So this is a huge problem for conventional, non-GE, and organic alfalfa farmers. So while this while the GE alfalfa um, crop was actually being fought in court, farmers were not allowed to plant this alfalfa. And this was in order to help 
nearby organic conventional farmer, alfalfa farmers, so they didn't have to deal with this contamination while it was still being disputed in court. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense and to now, set up an infrastructure where we know how to deal with it. We know, the, in this case, the way it's being shipped. Um, I know there have been issues. I know of an, an organic dairy, Strauss Family Creamery in Marshall in California, um, all organic, and they purchased organic seed, and they, on their own dime, tested the seed and found a really high level of contamination um, of GMO ingredients, which they didn't pay for and didn't want, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And now they're testing every batch regularly to make sure that their organic feed is truly organic and not co-mingled. Um, Mark, you had right. another comment. Well, Jenna, I, what I'm wondering is, um, is that right now, if a farmer it, land gets contaminated, then mm -hmm. Monsanto can sue that farmer for uh, patent infringement. And so does that mean that during this period where you can't sue Monsanto or you can't, or you they can plant the seeds without the environmental report, could mm -hmm. a, an alfalfa farmer or someone who uh, still get sued by these companies that produce GMOs even though they haven't had a full environmental um, report done on them? Um, that's a good question. I think that um, they, Monsanto, if they were, if they did find a reason to, could still do. I, I think it would be unrelated. Yeah, um, it's two different issues, right? One is the patent. That, yeah. is the patent issue that um, even if you get blown in um, genetic engineered seeds, you still mm -hmm. owe patent infringement, or you, you still be subject to patent infringement, even though you didn't want that seed. I think that's one area. Right, and that would be separate from the actual being allowed to plant yes. under like a permit. Because it, it sounds plant. like the intention is great, right? The government is saying we want to have an environmental assessment done that is really thorough, but the only provision is that meanwhile you can use it. You can use that technology. It's like testing if if, if paint, lead-based paint is toxic. Meanwhile, no, paint as many houses as you can. Um, right, exactly. Th that's odd. Where, where does this legislation stand right now? Um, we know that President Obama signed it or had to sign it into law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was signed into law at the end of March, um, and it's effective until the end of September, which is the end of our fiscal year. Um, so basically, it can be this continuing resolution can be reauthorized, as we've seen with all the dysfunction in Congress recently. They've been just reauthorizing these continuing resolutions. Um, so this could happen again, uh, which we don't want to see happen. Um, Barbara Mikulski who actually was the chair of Senate Appropriations and was responsible for having this in the in the continuing resolution and as a rider um, has actually released a statement opposing the rider and and you know saying that she was going to try to not allow it to be extended into the 2014 appropriations discussions. But what, I mean, it remains yeah. to be seen. Why was so. it signed into law anyway? I know there was a fair. Um, you know, debate going on, and it was slipped into a rider that I guess had to be decided upon. But um, why why was it signed into law and not taken out in the last minute again, as it was slipped into that rider in the last minute? Well, there was actually um, some senators did actually try to get it out by co-sponsoring an amendment that would strip it from the continuing resolution. Among them were Senator Tester and Senator Gillibrand. Um, unfortunately, it was not a successful effort, um, so it just sort of got stuck in there and, and stayed in. They, what, one of the problems with this particular continuing resolution was that it never had the opportunity to be brought before the appropriate um, committees, which would have been the Agricultural Appropriations Committee and Judiciary. Sure. So it really only went through appropriations. These people didn't necessarily have the expertise on the topic. Um, which is one of the tricky things with riders being attached to bills that have nothing to do with the actual rider, <laughs> as was seen in this case. And they that you know they're they're being slipped in at at eleven at night often when half right. of the senators or the House of Representatives are already gone for the day. Um, a really odd way of of using the framework of democracy and and the rights mm -hmm. of the individual senators or representatives to you know to slip right. in things like this one where um, yeah it's approved by people who are not experts and by only a third of the people who should be looking at it and voting in the last minute, kind of riders of the storm. It makes you question sort of the intent of that bill, of the rider, exactly, to be 
stuck in there last minute, you know, like why couldn't this have gone through the appropriate committees and done the right way? Or it it's makes really the such in- an important writer. Yeah, or it makes the intent really clear, actually. Well, <laughs> I think that's right, beyond yeah. questioning, but... No, that's a, that's a good yes. point. Well, and all the more reason for us to be proactive, for us to know what's happening and for us to use our voices. I remember, I think it was in March, exactly. it may have been in February, but it was right before this was signed into law. There was a, a big push to get people to call their congresswomen, to call their congressmen and to say, I oppose this. See what you can do because this is a really big deal. This is going against what I think is is an ethical way to to feed the world, feed the country. So, what you said that it's ending and it's expiring in September. Of course, it does have the opportunity to be renewed. What can we do now? Can we do anything now? Can we prevent it from being signed in again? And how would we go about using our voices to make sure that doesn't happen? Yes. Well, when once the um, appropriations goes comes back into <laughs> play in when um, Congress resumes session in the next next month, um, there will be opportunity because they will actually have to do something about, I mean, they have to reauthorize the continuing resolution or come up with a new budget. So um, there, we will be obviously being having actions like we always do. Um, so I would say to, you know, to everyone out there, just look out for actions and ways to contact your, you know, local congressperson and senator and tell them that you're not interested in this um, farmer assurance provision and that you would like to, you know, see it taken stripped out of the of the next budget appropriations bill. Yeah, and maybe on your computer you can set your settings to when you open the internet that the first page uh, comes up is not something funny with like Facebook Fido's or something <laughs> yeah whatever your right. pe- favorite pet site but food and water watch just as a suggestion because it's just 30 seconds of glancing over what's important and um, that might empower us to help you Jenna um, to do the work for us that you're doing um, that's Jenna Reed lead researcher for food and water watch our trusted watchdog in Washington DC giving us an update on policy in this hour of an organic conversation again that website is food and waterwatch.org and um, thanks for that update on um, the farmer assurance provision aka the Monsanto Protection Act Um, we want to hear from you about the Trans-Pacific Partnership which kind of snuck in around free trade and And, um, you know, the, the, the dealings of countries and the change that that creates when we set agricultural policy or trade policy, how that has an influence on society at large. Um, again, that's Jenna Reed, leads researcher for Food and Water Watch. Um, thanks for being with us, Jenna, and stay put. We'll come back right after this quick break. Back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our topic today is what happens in Washington affects us all. Food policy updates from Jenna Reed, lead researcher of Food and Water Watch, our watchdog in Washington, D.C. Now after the summer break, several bills have been passed and actually signed into law. We heard from the Farmer Assurance Provision, also known as the Monsanto Protection Act, what happened and what we can do coming in September. 
Um, and either way, follow foodandwaterwatch.org on their website for newest policy updates and how you can get involved. And sometimes it's just that five-minute call once a week to your senator to um, really create change, affect change. Um, we're diving into our second topic with January today, uh, which is um, free, so-called free trade. So, Jenna, after September, which is when the farmer assurance provision is going to come up to expire and then potentially renew, there's another thing that's happening that we need to be aware of, and that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a free trade agreement that's set to be decided in October. So this this is really hot news and another thing that seemed to have gotten on the radar very quickly with a short turnaround for us to take any action. So let's understand what it is to begin with. I feel like, you know, I've worked in the fair trade movement for, for a decade. I think that the idea of free trade sounds like a good thing. It, it sounds like it probably empowers small overseas producers to have greater economic viability. But that is not the that is not the summary that I'm reading in regards to this Trans-Pacific Partnership. There's a lot of concern over what's going on. Can you Can you tell us what this is about? You're right. It is exactly the opposite of um, a fair trade agreement. Um, so the Trans-Pacific Partnership is um, 12 countries are involved, um, including Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, and the U.S. And it, it's currently operating under the fast-track process, which would allow it, in essence, to be dealt completely in secret. So we kn- we know very little about the actual negotiations that have been going on, except that they've been basically um, being negotiated by 600 business interests who have a stake in the trade deal. So um, it hasn't been made very public, and even Congress, who is you know very responsible for the trade arm. Um, has not been allowed to help negotiate um, under this fast-track process. That seems completely unconstitutional. Yeah, why? it does, doesn't it? <laughs> why is that? Why are they not allowed to be a part of the negotiations? You know, it's this fast-track process that um, it's, it's begun, you know, and that NAFTA was negotiated under this process. Um, and it basically just allows the executive branch to take over trade power. Um, so... Right now, Obama is in charge, and Congress will have the opportunity to vote yes or no when the negotiations are final on this treaty. They won't have the opportunity to change any of the actual uh, um, facets of the deal at all. They will only be able to vote yes or no. So, um, what's what's curious is, about that? Unfair. Yeah, what's curious about that, Jenna, for me is um, if there is a political process that is not held in public in a democracy that should already raise our eyebrows. But I can absolutely see that in this very complex world, some negotiations are so delicate that they shouldn't be broadcast with 50 mm-hmm. news stations. And even the news has, or the media has a certain role in portraying the picture fairly or not. So, you know, I I would trust in a good working democracy that there are some conversations to be had that may not be ready yet or of their sensitive character. It is interesting, though, that in these negotiations, large food companies are actually part of the conversation. Right. These corporations are actually acting at the same level as that governments would. Um, And it really is undermining our democracy when you think about it. And what it seems like is more of a corporate power grab. So, but um, but how guys of a free trade agreement? <laughs> right, but back to Sita's question: How mm-hmm. how is this constitutional to say is it's invite only, and the only people or companies that are getting the invite are large companies? Is there anything on the legislative level that one can do to allow watchdogs like Food and Water Watch to be invited as well? Well, it's actually, I mean, the constitutionality is actually in question, and many um, members of Congress have actually been circulating letters around, you know, telling um, USTR, the trade representative, to let the process be more transparent, because right now, where it stands, it's actually, you know, a backdoor process, and not even Congress is involved, which, I mean, it's pretty crazy and ridiculous. Well, and, um, and, 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 and Jenna, before we get into the details, Mm-hmm. And this stuff, this has always started being created when we when we passed GATT, right? The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade 
many years ago when it allowed that there would be, you know, or organization that you could could bring up charges on, you know, trade infringement, but you couldn't uh, defend yourself in those agreements and things like that. And um, I really do think that, you know, that more and more of this is uh, we need to be aware as citizens, you know, what's being agreed upon. Because as soon as uh, as soon as politicians talk about trade, everybody goes, oh, well, trade's good. So we need to support that. Yes. Right. But so. Well, another just quick another issue of the, the negotiations is that, you know, many of the major players, which would be farmers who during a lot of the ag talks, you would think that farmers would actually be able to be part of the discussion, um, especially smallholder farmers in a lot of these countries, um, and they're completely left out of the discussions, and so are, so are organizations like us, civil society, um, the general public, and no one is getting access to negotiations, and, you know, the only people that are actually able to discuss this trade agreement are the big the companies, the biggest companies that really have a stake in in the, in the trade itself. And benefiting from it. So let's go there. Right. I mean, I already feel very strongly that the way this is being discussed is unconstitutional, but let's talk about the details. Did you say there are 600 businesses that are? Yeah. Okay. And so what are those businesses and, and what are the details? What's going to happen and how is it going to affect us and how is it going to affect the the communities overseas? Well, um, we don't know the all of the exact interests. Um, a lot of what we found out about this treaty has actually been leaked. So um, some of the companies, some of the food companies involved, you know, the big ones, Tyson, Cargill, ADM, Kraft, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, um, and then some trade groups, American Soybean Association, American Meat Institute. And you can imagine a lot of the biotech companies are involved as well. The problem with having these companies so involved in this in these negotiations are the fact that they're going to be pushing for the best ways to get them the profits that they desire and that they feel entitled to. So um, one of the issues here, especially for the biotech industry, is um, intellectual property rights. And basically, they're going to be expanding these property rights for big companies, making it even harder for these smaller countries like Malaysia and Singapore to actually have generic drugs, um, which they so um, they so need for um, you know, all of the diseases and um, especially generics are really used for HIV medication, essential medication. And these, the generic versions of these drugs are going to be inaccessible and almost unavailable in these countries if the, these patents are really enforced as they're going to be with this agreement. Um, it's part of um, the WTO agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, which started this process back in the 90s. And then in regard to food, we know that food policy is heavily affected by trade. Of course, um, however well the product can be sold kind of defines the the overall policy of, of where you know, how much it's grown and where the country is headed in terms of agriculture. We've seen that in Japan, for example, um, their food independence has dropped from uh, over 70% to now in the 30s of self-reliance. So these trade agreements have a national, international, um, and even a geopolitical uh, impact on countries and their relationship with one another. Can, right. can you comment on, on that? Sure. Um, you know, in the past, as we've learned with NAFTA, um, you know, when that was passed, we expected um, it to help and, you know, open up jobs and help the economy of Mexico. And instead, what we ended up doing is importing cheap corn into Mexico, displacing many, many farmers, having them go bankrupt. And now they import over half of their staple crop, which is corn. Um, and, and basically, unfortunately, Japan faces sort of the same fate. Um, you know, with mo 80% of all farmers in Japan are, 80% of all farms in Japan are smaller than two hectares, which is very, very small. And, you know, the same, they could see the same thing with rice imports in Japan. And this would be, you know, terrible. As you said, Japan's self-sufficiency rate used to be extremely high, and it could just plummet after the TPP is um, done negotiating. Um, and this could... In the U.S., we could even see problems with um, our seafood imports because already we import about 90% of our seafood. Um, and Vietnam, Singapore, and Malaysia, all three countries involved in the TPP negotiations, are you know farming huge amounts of fish 
um, in their countries, and they don't have the same environmental regulations that we have sure. for this kind of um, seafood production. And we're going to see even greater imports from those countries. Thank so, you. This is, you know, our U.S. fishing fleet could be completely depleted pretty soon. This is shocking and disturbing that it's happening so quickly, and there is hardly any time for us to, I mean, there are hardly any details for us to know what to fight, but hardly any time to fight it. But there are still things we can do, and we encourage all of our listeners to visit foodandwaterwatch.org to learn more about how you can participate raise your voice and yeah, Jenna, protect your interests. We're speaking with Jenna Reed, lead researcher from Food and Water Watch, uh, Watchdog in Washington, D.C. That's foodandwaterwatch.org. Um, knowing that this is all happening kind of behind closed doors, what's the process? If you can just, um, uh, we're almost out of time, but shed a light on what the next steps are and how people can get involved. Well, um, the, you know, the negotiators have set themselves a deadline of October. Whether that actually will be met um, is unclear, but we at Food and Water Watch will have actions available on our website to help raise awareness and tell your congressman or senator to oppose um, this fast-track TPP negotiations and to tell them that we want transparency in our, you know, democratic proceedings. Yes, we um, do. And you can also raise your concerns directly at town hall meetings or if you, you know, are reading in the news and you read an article about it, maybe submit an op-ed or a letter to the editor. Just basically anything you can do to raise awareness or let your um, local legislators know that you, this is something you're concerned about. Yes, and if anything, go to the Food and Water Watch website. Again, that's foodandwaterwatch.org. Jenna Reed, lead researcher, thank you for joining us today and giving us an update of what's happening in D.C. Pleasure to have you on the show, even with this kind of unpleasant topic mm -hmm. of policy that is happening. What happens in Washington affects us all. Food policy updates yeah. here in Organic Conversation. Thank you, Jenna, for being with us today. Thank you, Jenna. We really Thanks appreciate all of your me. work. Thank you. Yeah. On, on a happier note, um, even though democratic power is very happy, but let's execute it on a on an even so happy note. What's coming up is the world of produce. Um, that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. Are you committed to green, socially responsible, and sustainable business practices? Percepticon can help with eco-friendly internet solutions, website design services, e-commerce solutions, mobile apps, and high-performance internet hosting for your business. Percepticon is a full-service agency that specializes in web consulting, strategy, and technology development, so you can successfully communicate with your audience. Lighten your tech footprint in a green hosting environment. Call Percepticon today at 925-937-9000 or visit them at Percepticon. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. We heard a food policy update straight out of Washington. With us was Jenna Reed, lead researcher of foodandwaterwatch.org, one of the premier Washington watchdog groups. 
watch groups. What is it called? Watchdog. Watchdog. Yeah, watchdog, watchdog groups. groups. <laughs> On what's happening in the world of policy and That translates right into the next segment. People were commenting on my drum roll last time. I'm practicing. That's because it wasn't Here's that good. Mark <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a very, very Here's quiet Here's Mark jam. Mulcahy, our very own produce expert with what's in season. Mark, what's happening at the docks? What's in season? Well, you know, today I wanted to talk about the Environmental Working Group's Shopper's Guide to Pesticide. It's uh, been out for a few months now, and every yeah, year— Yeah, new version. Uh, every year. Every year they, they put they put this out, and the 2013 uh, Shopper's Guide is out. And, you know, I've been working in a lot more stores that are c carrying conventional and organic. Uh, a lot of stores in different parts of the country feel like they want to um, carry conventional because it offers a cheaper price for some of their customers that may be on a budget. And, of course, you always want to serve your community when you're a retail store. Um, and so that's where the Shepherd's Guide comes in as something that might be a valuable tool if you are a person who's shopping on a budget. Um, they had the Dirty Dozen, of course, that has come out, which is the the products, the produce uh, products to avoid. And then they also have the Clean 15, which are the ones that generally have the least amount of residues that are good to buy. And we're talking about pesticide residues. And we're talking about yes. pesticide residues, yes. Um, and so the list changed a little bit. Some of the things that were have been on it have gone off and some have gone on. Um, the, the Clean 15, the things that they're saying that you should be able to buy without much worry about residues are asparagus and avocados and cabbage and cantaloupe, sweet corn, eggplant, grapefruit, kiwi, mango, mushrooms, onions, papaya, pineapple, sweet peas, and sweet potatoes. And, of course, you can always go to the EWG.org EWG to see the entire list. The interesting thing about the Clean 15 for me is, is the conversation for organic for me or for sustainable agriculture or any of this stuff, or even just the sheer enjoyment of food, is not just about the residues that are on your food. Um, it is about the whole picture, is how it's grown, the farmers that it supports, um, the, pesticides, the, the fertilizers that are used, the growing methods that are used. And I think that while I absolutely think this Clean 15 is a wonderful resource for us, I think we, if you're going to be an advocate for your own food, it's really good for us to know how things are grown. Yeah, food really affects all aspects of life, as we know, even culture and community, the way we eat, the way we grow food, farmers markets, um, all that is affected by the way we grow food. But, of course, in the spirit of education, this is a great list to start off with. And um, it takes into consideration how pesticides are applied, not just the tonnage of pesticides um, early in the season, perhaps on the crop before it bears a fruit. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's a it's a good guiding principle for people who don't shop organic entirely for whatever reasons, maybe a budget question, um, Clean 15, Environmental Working Group. Um, it also doesn't differentiate, though, between um, genetic engineering and pesticides. For example, I saw on the list sweet corn, um, papaya on the on the Clean 15 list, and then also, um, what was it, summer squash on the Dirty Dozen, on the things to avoid um, or ideally buy organically if you can. Um, all those are now in the marketplace as genetic variations. Well, yeah, right? not, Poss possibly not in huge numbers. They're just getting started, but they they could they could be out there, and they're not labeled, just as as we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, as we know now, um, it's not just genetic engineered ingredients that have entered our food chain, but sweet corn, papaya, and summer squash are some of the produce and fruit that actually are allowed as from a genetically engineered plant. Um, to be now found in your grocery aisle. And well, and since sweet corn and papaya are now on the Clean 15 list, it's something else to consider. It may not have pesticide residue, but it may be genetically modified. Mm -hmm. It might be. And, you know, just one last thing for us is is we're all busy. We're all trying to shop the best for our family. We all want to get the best food. Is On the pesticide thing, the reason I think that this is important is because even when pesticides have been banned, which many have, they are still finding residues from pesticides that were banned in the 70s and the 80s still coming up in the soil in certain crops 
that they're testing still, and they haven't even been used for 20, 30, or 40 years. Good point, and it's not just domestic produce, right? It's not just domestically grown, U.S.-based fruits and vegetables. Um, Many countries, for example, uh, banned DDT in the mid or late 90s, whereas in the U.S. it was banned in 72. So um, that is, um, you know, in in many countries still an allowed practice and still part of the groundwater, and if that water is used for irrigation, it's just an, an ongoing chain that you would break when choosing organic um, as much as you can. But as as always, Mark, you say, you know, wash your produce, whether you eat the skin or not, wash your produce as best as you can. And, and then just consider what you do with it. We highly advocate um, composting any food scraps or even the peel, even banana peel. But bananas is one of those where if it has been grown with DDT on the skin, that would go straight into our groundwater in your backyard if you composted that non-organic banana skin. So more to consider. Yeah, and then one last tip is just that if if you do want to buy more organic, you can you know, buy it on sale, buy it in season, and buy and you know, look to your retailer for those deals that you can find so you can provide more of that for your family. Yeah, and freeze it if you can. Freeze it. <laughs> no, I like it a lot also because it's not just about a budgetary question, it's also about an accessibility question. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and yes, my family liked to choose organic. We may not have the option to get organic ingredients at our grocery store. So knowing what's clean in the conventional world is really great. Yeah. Thanks, Mark, for Thank the you, update. Mark. What's in season? What a great show. I mean, updates all around not just on what to buy, but also on how to be a more active part of the democratic process. So you live in a country that really is, you know, exercising the values that you hold dear. And I think that the one of the most important things to take away from this is to take the time to call your congressmen and women, call your senators, or send them emails. Because they really do read this stuff. They want to be great representatives for their constituents. Tell them what you are concerned about and how you would like to see them represent your interests when they go to make these kinds of policy decisions. I think that that's really being an active part of our government so we can live in a country that we're proud to live in. Yes, and we did hear about the farmer assurance provision in the beginning of the show, also nicknamed the Monsanto Protection Act. Again, coming up for decision in September. So important <clears throat> to let your legislator, your representative, know know what you think about it and also about a brand new initiative, a a conversation that is being held behind closed doors called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, which I believe we will hear much more about in the news coming up in the coming weeks as that is trying to be closed, those negotiations between politicians and large food companies without much input or any input from the constituencies, from from the democratic process, from the citizens of the world, um, countries negotiating where agriculture is headed and where food production is headed, TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, to be resolved in October, so the next two months, or to be finalized by October, the next two months, for us to weigh in as much as we can in this kind of closed-door conversation. Again, the Great research to start is Food and Water Watch. We had Jenna Reed on the show today, lead researcher for Food and Water Watch. That's foodandwaterwatch.org. That was a great episode. Packed. Packed. (laughs) Packed episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.